What's your favorite national park? The most popular one straddles the border between Tennessee and North Carolina. Great Smokies National Park has the biggest visitation of all the parks in the country. Coming up, the author of A Guide to America's 59 National Parks helps you plan a national parks road trip. When you visit France, a takeout lunch is a pretty good option. Really beautiful spaces where you can go to the market, pick out a few things, go find a nice spot, and have a lovely meal. And I find France facilitates that the most with its markets. And we'll take a look at how thousands of miles of ocean couldn't separate the South Sea Islands from ancient Polynesian navigators or from the seafaring explorers who wanted to live there, too. The long-term effect of this arrival of strange people in Polynesia was kind of tough on Polynesians. The puzzles of Polynesia and tips for visiting France and the national parks. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll get you ready for a trip to France and explore the mysteries of Polynesian settlers in the South Pacific. That's all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's get started by planning a national park road trip. Our guest, Becky Lomax, lives and breathes the national parks with a personal bond that stretches back generations. Becky grew up the daughter of a national park ranger in Washington State, and her great-grandparents even went to Yellowstone on their honeymoon. In college, Becky worked summers at Montana's Glacier National Park, and she now makes her home nearby. Becky has compiled the Moon Guidebook USA National Parks. It has detailed tips on accommodations, activities, and highlights for the parks, from Haleakala to the Virgin Islands and Acadia to Death Valley. Becky Lomax, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So when we think about parks, you've written a 700-page book. There's, what, 59 parks. You group them in your book by regions. When you're planning a visit to the parks, what is your strategy? If you've got a road trip for 8 or 10 days, you know... How do you do it regionally? There are several sections of the country where parks cluster together. Mm -hmm. One example I could give would be the Southwest, where you have arches and canyon lands that are just right next to each other. Then a little bit down the road is Bryce, Zion, Round the Corners, Capitol Reef. So you can kind of make a whole loop of these parks and pick up quite a few in one trip. So you could fly into one hub, rent yeah. a car, read whatever mm-hmm. guidebook you got, and connect the dots. Yes. Now, we think mostly about parks in the West, at least I do, but a lot of people's favorite parks are actually in the, in east. the east. Talk a little bit about the underrated parks in the East, because we always know Grand Canyon and Yosemite right. and so on. Well, there's one that is not underrated. In fact, there's a bunch that are not underrated. Okay. And That is Great Smokies National Park. Hmm. It has the biggest visitation of all the parks in the country. Great Smoky. Great Smokies. Is that because it's near big population centers? It could be. Yeah. But it's also beautiful. And now, how how does it handle its crowds? Can you get lost in nature there, or are you just standing on platforms waiting for your turn to look through the (laughs) telescope? No, you can get lost in nature. You have to hike. Right. Get off the roads to do it, but you can get out in the woods. You know, I bet half of the people complaining about crowds in the parks never get more than 100 yards away from their car. Uh, that might be a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to earn that a little bit. Give us a backdoor approach to parks. If you want to really find parks in the rough without all the, the lines and the commercialization and so on and, and just really find some beautiful solitude, what, do yeah. you, what would your backdoor be? Well, here's an example. Everybody knows how crowded Yellowstone is, Mm -hmm. but yet they want to go see it because it's got geysers and all this volcanic activity. 
Well, you can see some of that same stuff in Lassen Park in California. Far less traveled and far fewer people visit there. So Lassen would be... It's a volcanic park. There you go. Yeah. Which parks do you think have the worst crowd problems? Oh, I'd say uh, Yellowstone, Uh Grand Canyon... Right. Yosemite, definitely. Yeah. Now, that's, you know, it's kind of good because a lot of people are enjoying the parks. I mean, that's the Ab- measure yeah. of the popularity. So it's it's a nice problem to have. It is. But you do not need to be stuck in the middle of a traffic jam. No. So what are some tips on that? Would you go off-season? Would you choose places that are less famous? Would you get up early? What What are the... Because I would think it's pretty... You know, for European travel, I say there's two IQs of travelers, those who are stuck in lines and those who are not. You just... <laughs> You just got to get on the ball and avoid those crowds. Exactly. Yeah, and I think off-season travel is one of the best options Mm -hmm. because not only are the crowds fewer, but you can see some really special things. You go off-season to, say, Rocky Mountain Park, Mm -hmm. like off-season out of the Mm -hmm. July-August crazy land. Mm -hmm. Go in fall, you're going to see the elk rut, which is... The what? The elk rut. The males are rounding up their harem of females. Oh, it is rutting, oh, actually. I, what so, month is that? <laughs> you want to go? It's October. October. Oh. And a lot of people do go up for that, but it, it isn't as crowded, definitely, as... With humans. You know, yeah, as <laughs> the July-August. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking elk rutting with Becky Lomax. Her guidebook is the USA National Parks, a complete guide to all 59 parks. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Adrian's calling in from Los Angeles. Hi, Adrian. Hello. I really wanted to call because I have recently been getting into the parks and have had the opportunity to visit a few of them. But one of the things that's, that's really I'm, I'm interested in, in finding out more is, is how can I can find out more information about the park's native and indigenous past, like the Native Americans, their lifestyle there, and, and really their past and the formation of the parks. Because I've found it to be just like a whitewashing of a lot of the history, where I find out a lot about the settlers or, or people who came in later, but not much about that past. And as, as a Mexican-American person who I feel like that's happened to my own personal history with the European history being you know, always emphasized, I'm wondering how I can you know, approach my visits to these parks differently. That's a very good observation, and uh, you're right. You can have the Knott's Berry Farm version of the parks, and it's uh, the white settlement of the Wild West, or you can focus on the indigenous history. Becky, uh, if you want to learn and and gain an appreciation for indigenous cultures, which parks are, are a good classroom? You know, quite a few of the parks are really making an emphasis about bringing the native indigenous history out. Mm-hmm. And there's been some really super projects done in several parks recently. One is Glacier Bay. Up in Alaska. Up in Alaska, Uh yeah. They have just done a whole kind of reconstruction of a native center up there. And is it done tastefully in ways way uh, indigenous people would like? Yes, and it's done in tandem with those tribes. All right. Same with outside Glacier Park and inside Glacier Park. Mm -hmm. Blackfeet border the park, Mm -hmm. and the visitor centers have been starting to put more and more information. I think there's a sensibility about that. Absolutely. Adrian, have you found any good examples? Examples or, or just disappointing examples? For the most part, disappointing. I would say that outside Rainier, because there is still some of the population, and I know there's some of the reservations outside, and some of the native communities are still more, you know, present. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's harder to avoid, and so I did see some things very small, mm-hmm. and for the most part, very disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it really is a large part of the history that's missing. And as I'm planning in the next six months a trip to Halakalea in Hawaii as well as Yellowstone, mm-hmm. and um, I'm thinking how I can prepare myself so that you know it may not always be available, yep. and I haven't found a place to do that. I think parks want to be responsive to people's interests and concerns. And if everybody who's listening now, when they go to a park, would express an interest in indigenous education and appreciation of cultures that were there first... I think they would uh, do a better job of that. Thanks for your call, Adrian. Thank you for taking it. Exploring America's national parks has long been a way of life for Becky Lomax. She's written the new guidebook from Moon called USA National Parks, the complete guide to all 59 parks. We have a link to her work at ricksteves.com slash radio. Scott's calling from Reno in Nevada. Hi, Scott. Hi, Rick and Becky. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, what are your park thoughts lately? Well, I had a wonderful experience this past summer. I participated in the annual Cycle to the Sun bicycle race in Haleakala National Park. It starts near the coast uh, in Paiea, and it winds, uh, so it starts near sea level and winds about 36 miles up to the summit of Haleakala, over 10,000 feet high. It took about five hours, but it started with a prayer and a blessing from a couple of Hawaiian priests. Uh, There were about 200 racers, and uh, we wound our way up. It was intimidating because it, early in the ride, you can see the small white dots of the observatories at the top. And you're thinking, <laughs> i got to go 10,000 feet yeah. up there because that's uh, like from sea level to 10,000-foot summit, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Wow. So it was a bit intimidating seeing those white observatories and knowing that I wasn't actually going to see them up close for about four more hours. <laughs> so now this is called the Cycle to the Sun Bicycle Race. Can I just ride a bus up to the top and rent a bicycle and go downhill? Yes, there actually are several companies that are concessionaries with the National Park Service. And um, I think they start maybe just outside the park boundary. But um, there are several companies that offer those tours where people can just ride downhill all the way down to to nearly the coast. Well, that would be a beautiful experience. It is. Um, The views are are spectacular, obviously. And it it winds its way through several climate zones. So you start in the forest, get up toward bare lava, um, see some of the, the native silver sword plants and... Um, Hawaiian geese. The tough thing about this race is that it does kick up to the steepest part of the area yet. So, in addition to being out of breath, um, huh. it was it was steep, but you, it was very then, much worthwhile at and 10, a, a bucket list event. At ten thousand feet, Scott, are you feeling the altitude? Does that add to the exertion? For sure. Um, I live at about five thousand feet in elevation, but even for me, huh. uh, starting about eight or nine thousand feet, I certainly felt it. Did you look into the crater from the top? Yes. Yeah, um, just below the, the true summit, um, there actually is a wonderful uh, visitor center, and a lot of people will actually visit Haleakala for the sunrise. Oh, um, yeah. And there's a wonderful sunrise that takes place right by that visitor center. Sounds like a fantastic experience. Thanks for your call, Scott. Thank you. Have a great day. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been talking with Becky Lomax. Her book is The USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to All 59 Parks. Becky, Scott was just talking about taking a bike ride or or bussing up to the top and renting a bike to go down. That would cost a little money, but I I think it'd be worthwhile if you're looking for some sort of light adrenaline sports. What are some other ways, if you've got plenty of money and you just want to get the most out of the experience, horseback rides, rafting tours, uh, what are some splurges that accentuate the experience? Mountain climbing, for sure. How so? How does well, you, you, you hire could, somebody to be your guide? Uh, right. You hire a guide to help climb Rainier. Not help you climb. You right. have to walk. To kill you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, they lead you up Rainier. Right. Same with Denali. 
You can uh-huh. do that. Denali, of course, right. is the highest peak in North America. A guide knows what the safety issues are. Oh, yeah. And so that's very important, especially when you get in those extreme environments yeah. like and, the mountaintops. And, and, and a rookie like me could experience that mm-hmm. with, with a guide and a carabiner yeah. and some common sense. You could hire a raft to go down the Grand Canyon. That is certainly a way Absolutely. to do Absolutely. You can hire guides to take you out backpacking mm-hmm. in many parks. And especially for people who have never been backpacking, mm-hmm. that's a great way to go because they help you learn the experience. Every th- you walk by things that you would never know even to look at. Exactly. And when you have a guide, yeah. a, a half a day or a full day, whatever you can afford or how much time and money you right. want to dedicate to it. If you're a family, the you cost can, of one guide, uh, you know, for one person or five it. people yeah. could be a good deal. Yeah. So getting a hiking or backpacking guide is good. You can go further with mountain climbing and hire guides for mountain climbing. It's a lifetime of natural fun. Oh, yeah. you have the information, <laughs> go for it. Becky Lomax, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. There's more on Becky's website at beckylomax.com. Tour guide experts to France take your calls next at 877-333-7425. We'll also look into how Polynesians settled the most isolated islands on Earth and how we can confirm what really happened long before written history. That's all coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. There are so many reasons why France is the top vacation destination for visitors from around the world. Let's explore a few of them right now with the help of Graham Sutherland and Patrick Vidal. Patrick lives in Brittany in the northwest of France. He was raised in a small town in the northeast of France near the border of Belgium. His French tourism resume includes being a canal barge captain and running a seaside crepe stand. Today, he leads tour groups around his favorite corners of France. Patrick's joined by Graham Sutherland. Graham's from Toronto and specializes in guiding American and Canadian visitors around France. They'll take your calls in just a bit at 877-333-RIC. Patrick and Graham, bonjour. Bonjour. You guys have been taking groups around France lately. What's new in France? Uh, Patrick, what are on people's mind in France? What are we going to encounter? What's the vibe? Well, the vibe at the moment, what we see, we hear on the radio all the time, on TV all the time, is, is those manifestation, demonstration we've got in the country, mm-hmm. which wouldn't impact you as a tourist anyway, because it's very limited in space mm-hmm. and in, in time. But uh, it's very interesting to see the way people are in the street and trying to defend their rights, their needs, their, mm-hmm. uh, their wills. But it's a very, very interesting movement and uh, a lot of democracy alive you know, when you say manifestation, I think a, a celebration of freedom, a manifestation rather than a demonstration. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. your word, word for demonstration yeah. is, is manif- manif- manifestation. It's also lovely to see live in that you see the people, you see the signs, you see the crowds, you see streets full of people as far as the eye can see. And it's peaceful and yeah. it's normal. It's and an it's, exercise of democracy. Yes. And a lot of the coverage that we see either in France or in Canada and the U.S., it's also very dramatic. It's very intense looking, but it's very normal and it's well, totally well, fine to be a part of people are dreaming about traveling in, in France or anywhere for that matter, I have to say you have to remember when you're looking at TV, it's a visual medium. It yeah. has to look scary. It has to look exciting. Exciting. If, there's, if there's one drop of blood, that, that will be on the TV. Of course, yeah. Uh, smoke. But I've been in many cities when there's a manifestation. And you know, you travel in France, you've got to expect some demonstrations of some kind, some strikes of some kind. There are eight, just a little bit over 800 manifestations in Paris every year. <laughs> 800? Yes. 
So if you were <laughs> if you were to avoid Paris because there's a demonstration, you 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 never, go, you never get there. You better uh, enjoy <laughs> Copenhagen. Yes, <laughs> you got to go up and ask the people with the signs what they're talking about, and that's when you get some interesting answers. I I like that, and it's fun. So I guess the lesson is there's going to be manifestations, yeah. there's going to be demonstrations, and don't overreact to them. No, it's part of the culture. We are the world champion of strikes and demonstrations. <laughs> well, you, the you, Italians you, think they're pretty, pretty good, but we are so much better. You sort of I defined mean, it. I yes. mean, you, you cut off the head of the, the mayor of Paris, <laughs> didn't few, you, in 1789? Over a few people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the revolution. So, bottom line, it has no impact on tourism, really. No, no. The on, the only impact you could you could find is uh, is uh, transportation sometimes, but yeah. it's it's pretty rare. So it doesn't it, happen that often. You can always plan around strikes, it. Okay, so we won't overreact. You're okay. Right. Yeah. I just want to talk a little bit about the, the fun of France. Uh, and for me, I've noticed this lately, markets. I was just traveling across France, and in every town, I would go to the market, and I would just fall in love with it. Oh, the markets are the best. For talk me, about that, like, France is um, the country of the sandwich. There's bakeries in like every town, and every one of those bakeries makes fresh sandwiches. So in addition to markets, you have access to super fresh food, really, really tasty, really beautiful spaces where you can go to the market, pick out a few things, go find a nice spot, and have a lovely meal. And I find of all the countries that I spend time in in Europe, France facilitates that the most with its markets. Picnic is a French word, isn't it? Picnic. <laughs> Picnic. So Picnic. The, the parks are designed, there's benches. Oh, there's benches, there's you know, chairs in a lot of the parks, especially in, in Paris. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. But you know, those, those markets, they are a social event. Hmm. I mean, in the so. little town I live in, people don't see each other all week long and meet at the market. Mm. I used to live in a little hamlet outside of the town, and I would have a couple of the retired guy living there who would march the streets all morning long of the market. The market. the market is a morning, is a morning yeah. thing. Mm. But they would they would march the streets just to just to meet the, their friends. When I was living in Lyon, there is a market in the neighborhood that I lived in, the Quarus. There is a market every other day. And I realized it took time for me to go and shop, and I didn't have to go every other day. Right. But shopping in a market, especially in France, I find is very interactive. You don't just pick what you want. You have to ask, this is what I want. What do you think suits that? What type of cheese? I like this type. What do you suggest? And you end up having a conversation, and you end up having a conversation with all the different vendors you go to. Something we forget very often, there are a lot of markets in Paris. You don't have to go in the countryside in France to get markets. Paris has got markets every day in neighborhood different places, markets. neighborhood yeah. markets. Yeah. Yeah. Paris is a collection yeah. of neighborhoods. Yeah. Excellent markets. There's a lot Excellent of them markets. all around the place. The Rue Claire next to the Eiffel Tower, a uh, couple of blocks from that, you've got underneath the uh, the metro station of uh, La Motte Piquet Grenelle. Every Sunday, I think twice a week, you've got a, a big market, yeah. which is very, very live, very nice, colorful, and, and busy, and a very nice place to be. And it's not for tourists, it's for locals, and I think it's for locals who are happy to have a little small refrigerator tucked under their sink so they have to go to the market and spend a little extra money for their produce to buy it directly from the neighborhood yeah. merchant. Mm -hmm. I will add that one of my favorite things to do in France is to ask someone when I first arrive somewhere, which is the good bakery? Where do I get the good baguettes? That's a nice Everyone excuse to connect with somebody. has an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you wait Sunday morning. You look at the line. If there is a long line in front of the bakery, also it's true. a good bakery. Very the true. only the only place where the French people, the only place and time when the French people will line up is Sunday morning at the bakery. <laughs> at the, bakery. the rest of the time, mess, the lines are always a mess. But in the Sunday morning at the bakery, it works. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Graham Sutherland and Patrick Vidal. We're talking about France and enjoying the French culture. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we've got a call from Steve in Montgomery, Texas. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? We're doing great. What have you been thinking about in regards to France lately? We 
are traveling there this June, and a couple of things come to mind. This year is the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings and also the overall liberation of France. And oh, so yeah. I was wondering if there are any, any special observations planned uh, that you're aware of. And then second of all, we'll be having our own car, and we want to drive through the Normandy and Mont Saint-Michel area. Do you think we'll be able to find our way to the various sites uh, on our own? So June 6, 1944, D-Day, and now 75 years later. So I imagine there will be some festivities. Graham, do you know what's planned for D-Day this year? I don't know what's planned yet, but they're very on top of what that place in France means to them. They'll be doing something, and the signage is excellent. You don't even need a map to find all those places. Get a car. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the country. You cruise around, you'll find everything. And there are a lot of World War II um, wonks, a lot of uh, British expats that are living in uh, Normandy, Mm -hmm. and their whole life is is, uh, taking uh, visitors around and remembering D-Day. Patrick, what festivities do you expect for this well, 75th? Well, I mean, uh, again, we don't have the program exactly right, right. now, but what my little n- negative note on that, it's not necessarily very tourist-friendly, that kind of celebration. It's a lot of crowd. It's a lot of reservation by groups, by government things, by stuff like that there. It's not always the, the easiest way of the year to get there. So if so, you're there on June 6th, it might be very, it would, might be frustrating. I would plan to get to get a little bit before, a little bit after. I mean, you can be there to experiment the, the yeah. crowd and the way it goes, but if you really want to have a proper visit with a lot of sight and stuff like that, it would be certainly better That's to plan advice. a couple of days before, a couple of days after. And from a history and a sightseeing point of view, it's probably just as good. Exactly. Because it's going to be a lot of things are going to be closed because official people are going to come and, and close the thing for a mm, while. It's yeah. going to be it's difficult to navigate uh, as a tourist, as a, as a visitor. So, Steve, you're going you're gonna to have a car. Are you driving around actually on June 6th, or are you just going to be uh, there in the no, season? No, it'll be later in June. Actually. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, we have yeah. two guides here, and they've taken groups around uh, Normandy and in the, in the sites. And I'm just curious because I've got a, a sense there are some underrated and underappreciated sites or museums. Graham, people are going to know to see the American Cemetery, and they're going to mm-hmm. know to see the, the landing site and so on. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend to, to have a little uh, different angle on it? Two suggestions. One would be the German Cemetery. That's an eye-opener for a whole bunch of very healthy reasons. Another option would be the Crisbeck Battery. And the Crisbeck Battery is a, is a large, complex battery positions that were overseeing the beaches. So these are German defenses, German defenses anticipating uh, amphibious landing. Yeah, so they're not right on the beach. Right. They're the guns that had to be taken out. And we spend so much time on the beach, we don't think necessarily about the backdrop defenses. Right. And it's, it's a huge complex. And I'll second your idea about the German cemetery, because at that point in the war, it was mostly kids and old people that were fighting, I think. And uh, It's a, a humbling. Of, it's just a heartache. It's an eye-opener. So you can, you can, there's a lot of just very emotional and powerful experiences in the, mm-hmm. in the cemeteries. And I would say, look at a German cemetery. It's right there in, on Normandy soil. Yeah. Patrick, what, what would you recommend as an often overlooked way to appreciate Normandy? Well, and, to me, I would turn it around a little bit and go to Caen, to the Peace Memorial. I was hoping you'd because, say that. Yeah. Because this place is um, mind-blowing. So, so the city is Caen, C-A-E-N, yeah. and it's called a memorial, but it's like a museum too. It's like a memorial, but kind of bring a different image and different overlook of the of the situation. Talks about how we get there and how we and after as well. It's it's such a well done. It immerses memorial you museum. Get, you get taken yeah. into it. Do I remember correctly? You you enter at the top and you spiral. Yes, down going yeah, through go the down story. Why takes, takes you down to the thing there, and uh, and at the end you've got this celebration of and peace. Since it's a it's almost a full day visit if you don't want to do it well. It's a very very interesting place. There you go, Steve. Have a good have a powerful visit. I'm glad you're going to go there. That sounds I'm, great. Thank you. Thanks, oh, enjoy. Thanks for your call. 
We're taking your calls on Traveling to France this year at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Patrick Vidal and Graham Sutherland. By the way, we plan to commemorate the D-Day landing anniversary on the show in the first week in June. Be sure to listen when we revisit an informative conversation we had 10 years ago with one of the top-rated guides to the D-Day sites of Normandy. Jim's calling from Sunnyvale in California. Jim, thanks for your call. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for taking my call. Yeah. I have a question about uh, Jeet or Geet. I'm not sure how you actually say it. Jeet. Jeet. Okay. G-I-T-E-S. But, of course, the French have a more complicated <laughs> way to pronounce it. Jeet. Oh, you mean, of course. Complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just your typical American monoglot. Okay, carry on, Jim. Okay, so in the age of Airbnb, are Jeet still relevant? Hmm. Uh, I've stayed in one about a decade ago. It was awesome. It was amazingly cheap. If you stay off the French vacations, you can just get some great deals, especially if you want to be out in the, out in the rural areas. But, Absolutely. But uh, is Airbnb making it irrelevant? First of all, we know what Airbnb is. What is a gîte, Patrick? A gîte is what was before Airbnb. It's the same thing that an Airbnb, except that it's not run by one app that, that runs the complete thing. Uh, you can either stay a couple of nights or one night. You can stay a full week, and it's uh, either an apartment or a little house. And it's no no breakfast included. It, mm-hmm. Normally, on a gîte, you, you kind of do your own... Uh, you've got a little kitchen, you do your own thing, depending on the size of the place. Yeah. And it's all over the place. It can be in town, it can be in countryside. Have they just become Airbnb establishments now, uh, mostly? It's, it's just that a lot of people who run those places have found that if they go through Airbnb, they have got more return because they've yeah. got more exposure. It's exactly the same thing. Huh? Jeet have a huge range from the side room in a barn kind of mm-hmm. in the middle of the countryside to a formal bed and breakfast. And it, all that complexity is there on the kind of clunky Jeet website. And I think, like Patrick said, if they're not doing well or they're not getting enough traction, they'll also put it on Airbnb. And didn't they used to be like more for one week stays or is it? No, no, it could be one as well for days. short stays short as well. Stays too, depends but it's, where, depends so it's when. the French yeah, B&B yeah, yeah. without so the, French, the breakfast. Yeah, exactly. It's the French yeah, B. Yeah, yeah. Go for it, I think. Yeah, it's a great way to connect with the local people. Absolutely. And I, I think it's people to people travel. Yeah. Yeah, you've got the chance to meet people very often that yeah. run the place and uh, and you're in the middle of the countryside with people around. That's pretty cool. And a really good word to look for if you are on the JIT website is table d'hôte. If you see table d'hôte, it means they might be cooking for you as well, Ooh. which is an added bonus. Especially in the in the countryside, that yeah. would be very nice. Yeah. Oh, There you go, Jim. Thanks so much. And if I could just ask one more thing. Sure. Given the manifestation that you were talking about earlier, are air and hotel expenses lowered because people have been afraid to travel to France? No, that's nothing has changed. No, because it's still the most visited country in Europe, as far yeah. as I know. The first point was much better: traveling out of French school holidays. Ah, yeah, that's, that's true. fundamental. Yes. That's fundamental. You you busy. really want okay. to, to look outside of that because if you get caught by those things, their prices are higher, more people. When are the, ho- the school holidays, basically? School holidays is, of course, the summer, July, August. Okay, and so then, July, August. Uh, in May, June, you don't have that much. We've got big weekends, but you don't have the official school holidays too much. No, so okay. too bad. Have a good time, Jim. Thanks for your call. Thank you so much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about traveling in France with two French guides, Patrick Vidal and Graham Sutherland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jen's on the phone from Miami Beach. Hey, Jen, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, are you dreaming of going to France? I'm dreaming, and the tickets are booked. Um, yeah. Me and my husband are going there for the first time ever. I'm actually going to celebrate our baby moon. 
baby moon. Oh, <laughs> does that mean a last trip before you have your first baby? Exactly, oh. which I know, you know, we struggled with Paris because I know there's a lot of fun in Paris that you can't partake in while pregnant, but um, we figured there was plenty of other great things. There's a little see. fun left over for moms <laughs> exactly. in the making. Yeah. So, yeah, we're just looking for any great advice for, you know, a baby moon, walking, is great places to walk around. You're pregnant, so you probably have some cravings when it comes to the the local um, pastries and yes. baguettes. Macaroons and baguettes all day. Mm. Macaroons. Oh, let's talk about that. <laughs> Macaroons okay. and, and baguettes. That's a good diet. You don't need diet. to be pregnant to have a craving for <laughs> yeah. macaroons and baguettes. It's not a craving. That's just a reasonable desire. So I took a food tour in Paris that was so fun, and they took us to one of these award-winning bakeries who had the best croissants and the best baguettes, and they really showed us how to find a good baguette. Every year they've got this uh, this competition in Paris about the the best bread maker in Paris. Yeah. And one the, the bakery which wins is allowed to supply the French uh, Elysee, the French White House, yeah. uh, for the following year. That's, that must that's be quite really, an honor. That's a big honor, yeah, yeah. But how do you know a good baguette? I mean, that's... Because to me, it's one of the delights of being in France is that fresh bread. As we said before, if Delighted. you get there on Sunday morning, look at the long line at the entrance yeah. of the bakery, you'll find a good bakery. To me, something which is very important, it has to be well cooked. Yeah. If it's not cooked enough, it's all soft and, and not very nice. I want, I want a bread which is a bit darker. I want a baguette. You which... can see the, almost the, the grill of the, the yes, markings on the bottom absolutely. of the bread. Yeah, is this yeah. a good thing to look for? Uh, to me, it's, it's fundamental. A bread which doesn't, doesn't have crackle that... and yeah. doesn't have that kind oh. of, uh, of hardness on the top there is not good enough. When I was a student backpacker in France, I always had a very roughed up top of my mouth. It was always <laughs> sore. And I loved it because I was eating bread so much. I was loving There's it. another it thing. Cheap. When you see somebody coming back from the bakery, yeah. if the bread makes it all the way back home not good. entirely, <laughs> that's not good. Wait, she also asked about macaroons, right? Oh, yes. Okay, okay. let's go to macaroons. I think for me, macaroons is something that people consume regardless of how good they are. The big key advice for macaroons is that you want them to be fresh. And when I say fresh, it means when you pick them up, your fingers almost go right through them. So very delicate. Very, very, uh, fragile. very delicate. And if they're very delicate, you've got a good one. But you can't, you can't put your finger through one to test. That's the problem. So you have to try as many as you can. <laughs> okay. And don't expect to bring them home. They won't be fresh. Eat them yourself. You're in France. That, you know, that's Enjoy interesting. Yourself. A lot of people buy them for gifts, but no. 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 Buy it and eat it. Buy it and eat it. Spoken I as I like a, that. <laughs> buy it and eat it. <laughs> Jen likes that. Hey, Jen, what a great idea. Have a happy baby moon. Thank you. Thank you. And I also wanted to just say hi, Mom, because she's one of your biggest fans as well. Oh, hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. Hi, Grandma. Hi, Grandma. Hi, Grandma. Hey, by the way, before you go, Patrick, what's the, we say honeymoon. What's the word for honeymoon? Lune de miel. Oh, it's, it's literally. A, it's a literal translation. Yeah. Lune, Lune de miel. The moon of, 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 the of honey. honey. Yeah. And if you wanted to say baby moon. I don't know. It's not uh, arrived but in France yet. We'll have to Lune de miel. Lune de bébé. How would you say I'm pregnant? Because that might be an important detail when having dinner. Je suis enceinte. Mm. Je suis enceinte. Enceinte. What does that mean, literally? Pregnant. 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 Enceinte. Yeah. Enceinte. Yeah. So Je when your waiter enceinte. tries to give you wine over and over again, you can say, Je suis enceinte. But yes. you can say, Aujourd'hui, lune de baby, I like macaroon. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very good. All get right. Them. Have fun, Jen. Thank you guys so much. Okay. Bon voyage. Bon voyage. Bye. We've been talking France with tour guides Patrick Vidal and Graham Sutherland. Graham and Patrick, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Rick. Merci Goodbye. Rick. Au revoir.
Polynesians have lived on the world's most remote islands in the Pacific for at least a thousand years. We'll delve into the different explanations for how they settled Hawaii, Tahiti, Easter Island, and New Zealand. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. So I'm Anne Doig. I live in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, and I lead tours all around Scotland. And each area of Scotland has got very strong local traditions and dialects. Up in the northeast, it's called the Doric. And my grandfather spoke the Doric and Standard English. You would not understand somebody with Doric speaking to you. And one example is this, and it goes, Fit, fit, fits, fit, fit. <laughs> fit in the Doric is what? And fit also means foot. Uh, and so it's which or what foot fits what or which foot, meaning your boot. <laughs> fit, fit, fits, fit, fit. <laughs> Look closely at the Pacific Ocean on a world globe. The first thing I wonder about is, how did people manage to populate such far-flung islands so many centuries before jet travel and modern communication? Researchers and explorers have had their theories over the years. The editor of the Harvard Review has been looking into this. She's examined everything from the oral histories Polynesians have passed down to the journals of Captain Cook to the recent accomplishments of the Polynesian Voyaging Society. And now there's DNA evidence to help piece together the puzzle of Polynesia. Christina Thompson explores it all in her new book, Sea People. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So what is this puzzle, the, the complete title of your book, Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia? Well, the puzzle is that when Europeans or outsiders first arrived in the Pacific way back centuries ago, they found all these little tiny islands which were very far apart from one another and very far away from everything else, very far away from the continental edges of the Pacific. And they found that almost all of these islands, all the habitable islands, were in fact inhabited by people. And so it dawned on them fairly early that there was this question, who were these people? Where had they come from? And of course, you know, how did they get there? So that was the puzzle of Polynesia. And Polynesia is vast. I mean, in your book, you've got a map and it shows the Polynesian Triangle. And it goes from New Zealand to Hawaii all the way to Easter Island. And these islands are just tiny specks if you were flying over it. I mean, it's remarkable that they would have something in common. Is this one culture? Is there some way that we can surmise that they all came from the same place? Yes. Well, that's the other part of the puzzle. So they found that there were all these, diff all these people on all these islands, and the islands were far apart, and they were hard to get to, and nobody knew anything about where these people had come from. Some people imagined that they had been created in the islands by God because it was so improbable that they should be there. But the mm -hmm. other thing that happened was that, and this is really Captain Cook, this is in the 18th century, when Europeans, they had a hard time understanding the Pacific. They didn't have very good navigational skills, and they sailed across it and got lost a lot. And then towards the 18th century, they got better at it, and Cook was the great geographer, the great navigator of the Pacific in that period. And he visited a very large number of the islands in Polynesia. So he was in New Zealand. He was in Tahiti. He was in the Hawaiian Islands. He discovered the Hawaiian Islands. Well, for the European world, that is. He was in the Marquesas. He was at Easter. So it dawned on him that these people were remarkably similar. But once he 
began to see the similarities among the people, it started to become clear to everybody that it wasn't just that there were all these people, they were all the same people. Hmm. What indicated to him that they were similar? Well, so one of the things that happened was that he, he sailed into the Pacific originally to observe the transit of Venus on the island of Tahiti. So the transit of Venus is when the planet Venus passes across the face of the sun. And in the 18th century, astronomers believed that if they could get it accurately measured, it would help them determine the distance between the Earth and the sun, for example. So his assignment was go out there and make these astronomical observations, which he did. And then he was there for quite a while. And he got to know some Tahitians a little bit. And there was a man named Tupaya who was a priest, I guess is what you'd call him. He was a man of knowledge. He knew a lot of things. He was a navigator. He knew about genealogies. He knew the history. He knew the stars. He knew all these things. And he asked Cook if he could go with him when Cook left. And so he did. He joined the Endeavor, which is kind of an amazing thing to have done. This is 1769. And he sailed with Cook on the next leg of Cook's journey, which took him to New Zealand. And when they got there, this is 2,500 miles away, but took them months because they were zigzagging back and forth. And when he got there, it turned out that Tupaya could speak to the Maori, which meant that they shared a common language. And nobody was expecting that. That was a really kind of, you know, mind-bending <laughs> moment. And that connection would have gone back likely centuries before that. Oh, yes. So it turns out, you see, that all these people spoke versions of this language. The uh -huh. people in Hawaii's language was similar to the people in Easter okay. Island, to the people in Tonga, to the people in Samoa, to the people in Tahiti. So that was a really important piece of evidence, that these people were all related and that their, their pathway into the Pacific followed some common trail. When I look at your charts in your book, I see there's the Polynesian Triangle and... Uh, the Society Islands and Tahiti make it, Easter Islands makes it Samoa, New Zealand, Hawaii, but not Fiji. Fiji is part of Melanesia, which looks to me like it's culturally part of Indonesia. And then Micronesia is a, a different swath of island cultures beyond that. Am I understanding these charts right, that these are indicating that while the islands are disparate, the people have a cultural common denominator, and even though Fiji is just a little bit away from Samoa on the map, it's a different culture. Yes. One of the things that's kind of confusing about the Pacific in these culture areas, so this area called Melanesia, which would include Papua New Guinea and reach all the way over to Fiji, that western part of the Pacific, north of Australia, mm -hmm. that area is a very complicated area. It has a very old history, very complex history, lots of different peoples very long period of time of settlement, whereas the Polynesian area, which is this triangle, which is Hawaii, New Zealand, Easter Island, and all the islands inside there, their history is only maybe three and a half thousand years at the most, only a thousand years probably in the Pacific, in the eastern part. So it's a kind of a different story, and it's a little mm -hmm. complicated because it looks like it should be the same story, but it's not. You're married to a Maori man from New Zealand, right? I am, that's true. But the funny thing about my husband is that when he travels in the Pacific, and we do travel as much as we can in the Pacific, he is mistaken for a local everywhere. So we were in Tahiti last year, and everyone thought he was Tahitian until he opened his mouth because he doesn't speak French. La vie de la reine, de Bora Bora, la belle elle a vécu dans la maison. Heureux, sans souci, demain, on verra demain. Le Tahitien, il dit, Anamai, Habao, To Anamai. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Thompson. She's the author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. Christina also edits the Harvard Review Online, and she's a reviewer for the Boston Globe. Her website is christinathompson.net. Christina, when we're talking about sea people, it's just hard for me to get my brain around that a thousand years ago. They didn't have writing, they didn't have metal tools, but they were kind of aware of each other, or, or they had some common cultural threads. Was there trade? Was there communication? Were they completely isolated? What is your best bet of before any contact with Western civilization, did they know about each other? So that's a really interesting question. I think what most people believe is that they're kind of in spheres of interaction. So, for example, in the center of the Pacific, right in the middle, is the Society Islands, and that includes Tahiti and a bunch of Bora Bora and Moore and some other islands people might have heard of. Also, a string, a long string of atolls in the Tuamotus, and then the Marquesas, which are just sort of to the northeast. Those islands, I think there was a lot of interaction there, a lot of traffic between those groups, mm-hmm. especially the Tuamotus and Tahiti. But probably they didn't know that people were in New Zealand. I mean, once the the groups broke off and went to their islands, there was nobody knows how much return voyaging there was. There clearly was some return voyaging, but then it seems to have been over by the time that Europeans arrived in the Pacific. The great age of kind of real transoceanic travel seems to have been over. So return voyage, that's a whole different concept. In other words, they could get a one-way ticket venturing out and finding a new world for their, their clan. That's one thing. But then going back to where they came, that's a whole nother thing. Right, right. And a lot of the arguments have focused, especially in the 20th century, a lot of the arguments focused on whether or not there had been return voyaging, whether or not these people had just kind of been blown out to these places and landed in these islands and set up a new life and lived there, or whether they had traveled back and forth. And it seems pretty clear that there was travel back and forth, especially to places like, like you might say, between Tahiti and Hawaii. There's a lot of legendary material that suggests that there was travel back and forth. And that's a long trip. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, from Bora Bora to Tahiti, you can almost see each other, I suppose, but... Not quite, but... I mean, you could know that there would be birds or things floating in the water or an indication that there's another island out there, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. So is there anything physical that gives us a little bit of their, I was going to say history, but it's prehistory, right? It's before anything was written. Is there anything physical that we can look at as travelers? Yes, there's a lot of stonework in the Pacific. And one of the things that's interesting is to compare how the the stonework is different in different islands. You know, the monuments of Easter Island are obviously the kind of paramount example. Those are the famous ones. Yeah, those are the famous ones. But there are stone sculptures in the Marquesas. And then there is stonework. There are walls and platforms and Mm -hmm. structures and so forth in most of the other islands. Are we able to date this? And how far back does it go? Right. So, well, the stone you can't really date, but the shell is datable and the bones, of course. There's also a little bit of pottery, a tiny, tiny bit of pottery, which is kind of weird because the people of the Eastern Pacific are kind of considered to not have pottery, but there is a little. Hmm. The dates also have been, you know, something people have fought about and both thought and fought about. And the most recent dates have been moving kind of forward so that this seems like the settlement was a little bit more recent than they had thought maybe 50 or 100 years ago. So, I mean, are we talking hundreds of years or or thousands of years? About a thousand years, probably. So the dates for the settlement of New Zealand, the last Mm -hmm. one is considered to be around 1200 A.D., and Hawaii is sort of around the 1,000 mark. Uh-huh. Probably the society is a little earlier. But if you go over to Samoa and Tonga, those islands were settled more like 
2,500, maybe 3,500 in some cases years ago, so much older okay. on the western side of the Triangle. Indicating the other That's where they came populated from. from that original settlement. Correct. That's the direction from which the settlers came, mm-hmm. and they arrived in those western parts of Polynesia earlier, and then they stayed there for a while. There seems to have been a bit of a pause, and then they sort of propagated out to the eastern and the more remote areas. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Thompson. And in 2008, Christina wrote about the history of New Zealand and her cross-cultural marriage with her Maori husband in her book called Come on Shore and We'll Kill and Eat You All. Her latest book is about the settlement of Polynesia. It's called Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. So, Christina, let's talk about the sudden awareness in the Western world of these sea people in Polynesia. And what was that like when Europeans first connected with Polynesian cultures? Where did that happen, and what impact did that have on on Polynesia? The very earliest discovery was in 1595, so it was really a long time ago, and it was a Spaniard, and he found the Marquesas. And the thing they said about the Marquesas was that the people there were the most beautiful people they had ever seen. (laughs) But most of the early interactions between Polynesians and Europeans were not really all that happy. Often, the Europeans killed several of the Polynesians. And, you know, sometimes it went better and sometimes it went worse. But the long-term effect of this arrival of strange people in Polynesia was kind of tough on Polynesians. Not only did they suffer from some of these kind of more violent encounters, but they also were, of course, exposed to diseases that they were not really prepared for, that they had no immunity to. Like Native Americans, that was a... Like Native Americans, exactly. So, you know, Polynesians, especially in the 19th century, once the age of exploration was really over and you had, what you had was a lot of whaling in the Pacific and a lot Mm -hmm. of other kinds of trading going on, missionaries arrived, all these outsiders. And the whalers brought a hugely international cruise. I mean, people from all over the world, Mm -hmm. all ports, you know, and they brought a lot of disease into the Pacific. So that was tough. There were epidemics. The British must have connected with the Hawaiians in some kind of a positive way because they ended up putting the Union Jack on their flag and sending (laughs) some of their royalty to England to study. Was that just under duress? I think that the Polynesians, okay, so it is complicated that what happens in the 19th century, that the Polynesians take on a lot of European characteristics. They they learned to read really fast. They mm. liked the clothing. They they absorbed many new foods, different animals. You know, they became a kind of acculturated to Western right. to Western sort of norms very quickly and mm. quite enthusiastically. So it wasn't certainly wasn't an all bad thing at all. It's just that they were particularly succumbed to the to the diseases and that was that was hard. It must have been very tough. Christina Thompson investigates the different explanations that have risen over the years to explain how people came to live on the most remote islands in the world. She's the author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia, and she's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Christina also edits the Harvard Review Online, and she's a reviewer for the Boston Globe. We have links to Christina's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Now, if you're a traveler and you want to sightsee and actually see artifacts and learn about this, where do you go? What's a good museum? Oh, there's so many wonderful places. The Bishop Museum in Honolulu is an absolutely Mm -hmm. fabulous place, so that's a great place. There are little museums scattered about in various parts in some of the smaller islands, which I always recommend people go to because they're they're very interesting. They can be very small. Mm-hmm. I uh, went to one on the island of Ra'iatea, mm-hmm. and there's one on Huahine in, in Tahiti. So there are great little tiny museums all over. Did they have a situation where, you know, colonial powers, imperial powers would come and basically just 
loot the country of its heritage and take it back to the Smithsonian Institute or the British Museum or something like that. Because a lot of times in my travels, I, I go to a distant land and I kind of go, well, where's your patrimony? And, oh, it's in, it's in Berlin or it's in Paris or it's in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, you know, there are some Easter Island statues in, the, in Britain. <laughs> That's one. And there are, there are feather capes. There is a lot of mm-hmm. Maori stuff in various parts of the world, in Germany, in Britain, all over the museums of natural history and, and places like that in the United States. So there's a lot of it spread around. There's a new museum in Vienna, which is completely dedicated to the souvenirs picked up by the Habsburgs as they traveled the world, and the same thing <laughs> in London. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, imperialistic, but if you're a sightseer, it's easier to go to Vienna maybe than to the Marquesas. And uh, actually, as you're traveling Europe or the United States, you can drop into the Smithsonian or the British Museum and, and check out artifacts from these cultures. Are there some islands that where the indigenous groups survive more vividly to this day? I think that most places are, you know, thoroughly westernized, Mm -hmm. but there are places where in some parts of Polynesia, for example, people speak the native language. Mm -hmm. So Samoans speak Samoan and Tongans speak Tongan. Mm -hmm. In Hawaii, Hawaiian has had to be brought back, really. And in New Zealand, they're bringing back Maori. And in both of Mm. those places, I think they're being quite successful about bringing their languages back. So that's really, that's really fantastic. That's good news. That is really good news. And that's a trend all over the world is a respect for the smaller languages. Uh, they were on a trend to be losing these languages, but now in, in many regions, the smaller languages are, are having a renaissance. I think if there are people willing to do it, it, it is, they are generally declining still, and it can be pretty hard mm-hmm. to bring them back. Yeah, Christina, in, in all of your travels, in all of your studies, in fact, in your personal life, you, you married into Polynesia. You've married a Maori man from New Zealand. What is it that you admire about Polynesians? What do you admire most about this culture that inspires you to, to share this information? I think that these cultures are, they're just beautiful to me. They're, there's tremendous affection for children. There's a kind of vigor, a love of beauty, a love of dance, a love of sort of, there's a kind of stylishness in a lot of these cultures. I saw a woman not too long ago in Tahiti with the most exquisite hair and flowers and Oh, it's just beautiful. And I think that the their deep history is really amazing, that they made these incredible voyages across mm-hmm. vast, vast stretches of ocean. Christina Thompson, author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia, uh, thanks for sharing with us uh, your passion for this corner of the world and, and a fascinating insight into uh, an ongoing adventure to figure out the puzzle of Polynesia. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Isaac kaplan Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to WGBH Boston for studio help this week. Thanks to Sarah McCormick for her help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.